I'm going to have a seat and take out your Bibles, your copy of God's Word. If you do not have one with you today, if you didn't bring a Bible, you don't own a Bible, there is one close by under a seat in front of you, black hardcover copy there. Take that, make that one your own if you don't own one. And open it up, and I'm, I'm sure some of you, I can see up front already, have turned to 1 Peter chapter 3. That's great. Keep your finger there and turn to Genesis chapter 2. <laughs> We're going to be back to 1 Peter in just a moment, but Genesis chapter 2. This morning, we are going to talk about marriage. Yeah. And it's a good thing. It is a good thing. And... The reason why we are going to start in Genesis chapter 2 is because we are going to see that God created marriage. God instituted marriage. He had a plan. He had a purpose. And the reason why this is such an important topic to discuss in detail, because we're going to talk about not only marriage as a whole, but very specifically the role of the wife in a marriage and the role of a husband in a marriage as God defines them. And why, again, is this so important as, as Christians that we spend time doing this? Well, you may or may not be aware of this incredible fact. Blows me away every time I say it and I read it. There is very little, if any, statistical difference in the divorce rate among professed Christians as there is among those who do not profess Christ. That is a fact. Christians are getting divorced at the same rate as non-Christians. How can that be? Well, I would submit to you the fact that it is because as Christians, we don't look to God's word for the answer to solve marriage. We look to the world. We look at the same stuff they do. And we need to understand that God has the perfect answer, the perfect prescription for your marriage. He wants your marriage to be perfect, and it can be, if we follow his outline for us. We, we shouldn't, we shouldn't th think that this is strange because, again, understand that there is a very real enemy out there and he controls the world around us. So if we're following what the world is saying, how could we expect any different results? Before marriage, before women, men and women come together united in the bond of marriage, understand that the enemy will do everything he can to bring you together. But after you're married, he will do everything he can to separate you. Because either way, if he's successful on either end of that spectrum, again, we're no different than the rest of the world. The rest of the world has, has redefined sex, has redefined the intimacy that is supposed to be solely for a man and a woman in marriage. They've redefined that, and the world around us has redefined marriage. So how, how would we expect to look outside of God's word to find the truth about how marriage is supposed to happen, how it's supposed to work? And we're turning back to Genesis chapter 2 to start our study because here we see God designed it. God put it together. And we start in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. God looked at his creation. Everything that he had made, and he said it is good. It is very good. It is perfect. It can't be improved upon. However, he looked at one part. He looked at man, Adam, that he had created, and Adam was alone, and he said, it is not good that man should be alone. He needs a helper. He needs a companion. God is a God of purpose. And he said, continuing verse 18, I will make him a helper suitable for him. God designed the solution to the problem. Adam, as we're going to see, Adam at this point doesn't even know there's a problem. He doesn't even realize that there's an issue. God knew there was a problem before Adam knew there was a problem, and then God is going to now reveal to Adam the problem. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper suitable for him. So Adam, God brings all of the animals to Adam, one by one, by pairs. And he's seeing them and he's naming them. But he starts to get this realization, hey, they all have a companion. I don't. God does this so that he would realize this need. But God already has the plan in place how to fix this. 
Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He takes one of his ribs and he makes a woman out of it. He makes Eve. He makes Adam's perfect companion from part of him. God has the perfect solution. And he, and he does this together. And, and if you're wondering how, how we come about with the names, Adam, again, is the one that's responsible for the names. And, and how, does, how does woman get her name? Well, he's coming out of this deep stupor. And he sees this perfect companion for him, the one that God created, absolutely beautiful. And he rubs the sleep out of his eyes and he says, whoa, man. <laughs> Just thought you might want to know. That's how... I don't know, this is my theory, but the man said, verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He understood. He understood what God had done. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Two together, one man, one woman, joined together as one flesh. The design of marriage for God is that. Never to be divided. One together. So we understand that God is the one who designed it. God is the one who put it together. And we're going to study today in 1 Peter chapter 3, turn there, how this is supposed to work. In God's design, by His plan. The role for the wives, the role for the husbands. To have this marriage that God desires for all of us who are married to have and for all of those of you who are going to be married. Understand and learn these things early on. It will bless you. It will bless your future spouse. A couple of ground rules before we get started. No elbowing. None. None whatsoever. Ladies, we start with you, but we're going to get to the guys, so we're get, it'll be equal, both sides. No clearing your throat, <clears throat> you know, none of that. And especially as we start verse 1, ladies, no throwing of anything. I debated of teaching it from inside the drum cage, but I'm just going to trust you. All right, First Peter chapter 3. Verse 1, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Peter is writing initially here to the women, to the wives, and saying, ladies, your role is to submit to your husband, to be submissive to your husband. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now this has caused a whole lot of problems over the years. This, this verse, and the, the major problem is, it, is that it's, it's misunderstood is what is being said. The Greek word is hupotasso. And understand what it, first of all, does not mean. It does not mean slave. It does not mean maid. It does not mean lower quality, second class, anything of that sort. As a matter of fact, Paul, who wrote Ephesians 5, also wrote Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. This has nothing to do with status, importance, or anything of the like. It has everything to do with the order or the structure of things. The word hupotasso is actually a military term that describes being placed under in rank. Doesn't mean if, if you're in the military and someone is a higher rank than you that they're more important than you, that they have a higher class than you. It just is done for structural purposes. If, if there was no ranking, if there was no structure to it, it would be chaos. 
And God is saying that the same needs to be true in the household. There needs to be order. There needs to be structure. God is a God of order. And he designed this from the very beginning for the family. Now, carrying with it in the, in the meaning of the word is that this is a voluntary thing. That, that you willingly submit to that authority structure that God has placed in effect. Now, it also is unconditional, ladies. If you'll read, if we look at the verses that we've talked about, there's no condition clauses in there. It doesn't say submit to your husband if. It is, this is not a reward for your husband's good behavior. This is, a, this is an unconditional command from God. And remember, the one who designed and orchestrated invented marriage. And he says, this is, this is a command to place yourself in this order, in this structure that God has designed. We talked about this last week where we submit as people to the authority placed over us in government and at work because that is needed. If there wasn't structure like that in the world, in government, if there wasn't elected officials, if there wasn't police, if there wasn't those things around us, it would be absolute chaos. So those things are placed in order for structure, in order for, for harmony. And the same is true in the household and in the family. We see a a, a great example of even Jesus in this in Luke chapter 2, verse 51. When Jesus was was a boy, it says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection, hupotasso, to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. The creator of the universe, God himself, submitted to this structure of the family, Because that is God's design for the family. And when he became man, when he became flesh to dwell amongst us, he submitted himself to that family authority. Now this word also carries with it the tense, the verb tense, that it is a continuous action, ladies. This is not a once in a while thing. This isn't a twice a week thing. This is a continuous action to submit yourself to your husbands, to place yourself in that authority structure. Well, I know that's difficult, but it gets harder. Look at the end of verse 2. It says that they may be one, your husbands, without a word. Oops. Without a word by the behavior of their wives. How are you going to get your point across if you don't tell your husband what's going on, right? (laughs) By your behavior. By your behavior. You want to win over your husband's ladies? It's not beating him over the head with all of the things that he's doing wrong and continually pounding on him. It's by your behavior. Even though, and Peter says, even if they're not even walking with the Lord, even if they're not Christians, or if they are Christians and they've walked away or they're they're not going in a direction you think they should be going, even then, it says, so that they can be won over by your behavior. And he uses, he describes the behavior, chaste and respectful, respectful. And again, not earned respect, even when it's unwarranted. Respecting your husband for the man he is and the role that God has called him to play, even if he's not fulfilling that role as you think he should. God is saying you are to be in submission to that. Chaste, that word means innocent, pure, modest, reverent. Now those traits, respecting your husband, innocent, pure, modest, reverent, those traits aren't real important in the world today, are they? The, the, the new liberated woman and all of this kind of stuff. That doesn't play well in our society. It's not real important. It's extremely important to God, though. It's not only extremely important, it's eternally important. Look at verse 3. It says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Eternally important. Look at that word again. With, with the imperishable quality. We used that word. We saw that word in chapter 1, verse 4. Remember when we talked about our inheritance, that it's imperishable, that it doesn't fade away? This quality, if this is in you and being shown in you, is imperishable. It doesn't fade away. It doesn't, it doesn't go away. It's eternal within you because it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit in you. 
But it's also, look at this, I love this, it is precious in the sight of God. Do you want to do something that is an action that God looks at as precious, ladies? Right here. You behave respectfully. You have a gentle and quiet spirit about you. Now before we dig into those two words, I do want to touch on something that, that Peter does here, talking about the external adornment is what he says. Paul addresses this as well in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. Making a claim to godliness. As Christians, as Christian women, again, you're not like the rest of the world. The rest of the world judges based on your external appearance, how you feel. You have, you have importance, you have status, you have worth based on how you look externally. God is telling you that that is not how we are to look at ourselves and that is not how he looks at things. It is from the inside. But both Peter and Paul do address how you are to present yourselves externally as women who follow Christ, who are women who claim to be Christians, born-again believers. This is how you should present yourself externally. He says that it should be modest, it should be discreet, it should be tasteful with moderation. And I love this, though. It's not like he's saying don't do it. He's not saying don't adorn yourself. He's not saying don't do anything. As a matter of fact, when we look at this, this word adornment is actually the word cosmos. And it has multiple meanings, just like many of our English words do. And it does mean decoration or beautification. It does involve makeup and, and, and jewelry and, and, and those types of things. It does involve that. Neither one of them are saying don't do it. As a matter of fact, I quoted it before, J. Vernon McGee said, if the barn needs paint, paint it. Now, J. Vernon McGee said that. I'm just quoting him. Neither one of them are saying, don't do it. As a matter of fact, they are saying to do it. It's to adorn yourself, to, to, to decorate, if you would, but to do it in such a way that does not draw attention to you and draw the attention away from God. If anything, when you do it, it should glorify God. Because that word cosmos is where we get our English word cosmos, which means the sky, the glory of the, the universe. And when we, when we look at the sky and we, we look up there and we see the magnificence of it, the beautiful stars and the, and the planets and the moon, and to get outside in a clear night and you look, it says the heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm 19. Ladies, the way you decorate, adorn yourself, the way you cosmos yourself, should declare the glory of God. Not declare your own glory. Not drawing attention away from Him and drawing it to yourself. But also, as Christian women, it should, it should matter to you. It should be important to you that you should never do something that might cause a man to stumble. And the way you dress, men are visual creatures. And the way you dress can cause images and, and things within a man's mind. And you're responsible for that. You're not responsible for their thoughts, but you're responsible for, for making sure that you're not adding to that problem. I've heard it said that you should cover everything that should be covered and not too tightly. <laughs> because again, man, man is visual. And you probably don't intentionally do that. I'm not calling out anybody intentionally in this, but even unintentionally. And that's where husbands, we need to step in. We need to play a role in that. Ladies, I would ask you before you leave the house, ask your husband, am I okay with this? Because guys, everything you can see, another man can see. And it's important that we don't add to the problem that the world is propagating out there. Well, Moving off of that, because that's not Peter's point that we're talking about here, he's trying to contrast something when it comes to the role of the wife in the marriage. He's saying it's not about external things, it's about internal. He says those things, it shouldn't be merely external, but, he says, let it be the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart. That imperishable quality, the gentle and quiet spirit. 
Paul addressed it this way. He said, therefore, 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet your inner man is being renewed day by day. Nothing new to anybody here. Doesn't matter how much work we do, how much we try, this outer man is decaying day by day. It's, it's, getting, it's getting worse, not better. But the inner man, the inner person, the inner woman is the focus of what they're saying here. That is what is important. That is what is imperishable. That is what is precious to God. And he uses the term gentle here. And the Greek word is praus. And reading from the, the Strong's Concordance, which is, gives definition of, of, the, of the Greek words, I'm going to read from it. It says, gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness. Again, the opposite of. The opposite of what the world is telling you you need to do. You need to assert yourself. You don't need to put up with that. You don't da-da-da-da-da. All the television shows, all of the commercials, all of the movies, all of the magazines are telling you as the, the, the woman of today, you need to assert yourself. It's tired of this oppression and suppression, blah, 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 blah. That's what the world's saying. But God's word says the opposite of that. You are to be gentle. The opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. Trusting in Him. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of human will. This is God's outworking in you. The Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness, same word, praos, used in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, as a fruit of the Spirit, gentleness. And and when we look, we, we talked about it last week in verse 20, the, the, the actions of the flesh include strife, outbursts of anger. That's the flesh side. The spirit side is gentleness, self-control. And we talked about that continual battle. Jesus used this word in, in the, on the Sermon on the Mount. If this defines you, this gentleness, blessed are you, for you will inherit the earth. This is an important quality, and it's precious in God's sight. So ladies, before we move on from this, I, just, I have to ask you, and this is something that you need to work through yourself, and you need to ask yourself this question honestly. What defines you? What defines your character? What defines your, are you, could, could you honestly define yourself as gentle and quiet? Is that your spirit? That's, that's the spirit you are to have in this, in this role of a wife. Well, he continues and he gives you ladies an example out of God's word. A woman from back in Genesis says, verse 5, For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. It says here, Sarah, wife of, of Abraham. And it says that, that she called Abraham Lord. When did that happen? Back in Genesis chapter 18. The story, probably know. Abraham's out sitting under a tree one day, enjoying the afternoon breezes, and three men come walking up. He didn't know it at the time, but it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus and two angels. And they came to him and he did what he did, hospitality in the day would say to do. He, he prepared a meal for them. They sat down and they were fellowshipping together. And the Lord revealed to Abraham that you're going to have a son. Now Abraham and Sarah were well advanced in years, the Bible tells us. And, and Sarah was barren, couldn't have children. Well, Sarah overhears this conversation. And to herself, she is saying, but the Lord hears her. She says, really? Come on. I mean, am I going to be blessed with a child now? Am I going to have this kind of joy? That can't be. I, I'm, I'm old. And my Lord, he's, he's old too. 
And Jesus, and again, the, the Lord confronts her on that, but that's the conversation that she's having. And she calls him Lord, little L-O-R-D, not capital L. She's not calling Abraham her God, but she is in that statement saying, he is my master. He is the one who God has placed over me, and I submit to that. Now, in this story, in this thing, I draw from that that, ladies, if you're going to follow in Sarah's example, even though it seems impossible, even though it seems way, way out of Abraham's ability to do, way out of your husband's ability to do, even though you have a hard time believing the vision that your husband has as God leads and guides and directs him, you are to submit to that. You are to come underneath that. You are to come alongside your husband and encourage him in it. Way too often, we can get caught up in this, and, and you hear as your, as your husband is, is saying, man, I really feel called to this, or this is what I believe is going to, you can't do that. Are you kidding? Are you crazy? You don't have that skill. That, 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 that's impossible. We see in Sarah that that's not the right response. Now, hear me clearly, ladies. We, as men, as your husbands, desperately need to hear from you. We have to hear from you. We need your input. Peter and Paul are not telling you to keep quiet and sit down and blah, you know, follow along. That's not what they're saying. I, I have to hear from my wife. I can't tell you how many times, praise the Lord, that he opened my ears to hear what she was saying to me. It saved me from disastrous results. I needed to hear those things. And we need to hear from you, ladies. But what is being said here is you come alongside your husband, supporting and saying, you know, I hear what you're saying, but, but let me just give you my perspective. Again, gentle, reverent. Let me give you, let me give you my suggestion. This is, what I'm, this is what I'm thinking in this. And you have a conversation and dialogue, but ultimately, if your husband chooses to go down a different path, you are to follow him. You are to come alongside him. Sarah chose to honor her husband, even though it didn't make any sense what God was saying. Even though it didn't make any sense to her the direction that God was calling Abraham, she followed. Now, you might say that your husband is no Abraham. I'll give you that. But Abraham was hardly a perfect husband. Matter of fact, in just a couple of chapters, Genesis chapter 20, we see they pick up their tents, they start moving along, and they're coming to this new territory, this new region, this new area, and Abraham all of a sudden starts thinking, oh man, Sarah, my wife, she's beautiful, and the people in this town, when they see that she's so beautiful, they're going to want her as a wife, so that in order to have her as a wife, they're going to kill me. Pretty selfish thinking. And so he comes up with this great idea, and he tells, tells his wife, Sarah, here's the deal. Tell him you're my sister. Save my skin. Tell him you're my sister. Now, I got, I got to think. It's not recorded for us in Scripture, but she, she probably said, say, what? What? Really? That's your plan? But the Word tells us that she submitted to that plan. And they got into town and they said, she's my sister. And the king said, great, come on and be part of my harem. And, he, and the king takes her to be one of his wives. And I got to think that, again, Abraham that night is wondering, oh, man, what did I do? This isn't working out the way I had hoped. And Sarah, probably the same thing. But God, even though Abraham let Sarah down, God did not. Because it tells us that that night in a dream, God spoke to the king. And he said, you touch her, you're a dead man. <laughs> and he says, I kept you from touching her already. She's a married woman. Tomorrow, you get, you, don't touch her. <laughs> Even though Abraham let her down, God did not. God honored her obedience to her husband, following him, and God blessed it. God blessed it. Right or wrong, thick or thin, brilliant or boneheaded. She stood by him. And God blessed it. And ladies, wives, if you do it, 
God will bless you. God will bless your marriage. God will bless your family. God will bless other families around you as they watch you do what you do. That's how he works. You are to have a, an attitude of obedience and honoring your husband because it's precious to God and it blesses your marriage. Well, time for us husbands. Verse 7, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and, and, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Okay? Just to get this out of the way right away, because I, I can already hear it. Ladies, what, we get six verses and they only get one? Well, I, I, I believe it's the, it's the KISS principle for us guys. You know the KISS principle. Keep it simple, saints, right? He knows we, we, we're going to struggle enough with one verse. If, if he gave us six, we'd probably stay stuck in the first one anyway. So he's going to pack it all together but guys there's a lot in here for us it says in the same way in the same way husbands in the same way men we have a god-given responsibility role to play in this marriage god has called us and commanded us to do things as the husband first of all it tells us in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way live with your wives that means to dwell together it doesn't mean to cohabitate the same space. It doesn't mean share the same address. It means live together. Live your lives together. Men, that means that we need to be present at home. Your presence is required. It is necessary in the home. Now, I know some of you travel for a living. Some of you are gone for extended periods of time, and God has you in that season. It's okay. I'm not saying quit your job. But what I am saying is that when you are here, you need to be at home. You need to have a presence there. And not just a presence that, again, share into the same room. You know, you're in there watching TV and she's over there reading a book or whatever. No, you share together. You live together. You need to not just be there. You need to be there for her. Guys. Quality time. Focused on her time. The single practice that radically changed our marriage, Christina's in my marriage, early on, we made a, a commitment to one another that we would spend one hour a day together, just the two of us. Just the two of us talking, just sharing with one another. And tell you it's grown to an hour and a half now because we found an hour isn't enough an hour and a half every day unless one of us is out of town every morning an hour or an hour and a half together now if that is not your current practice guys I know what you're thinking because I thought the same thing what are we going to talk about what am I going to say for an hour hour and a half <laughs> here's the cool thing you don't have to say much <laughs> It's an awesome thing, really. <laughs> but it's important because it tells us in here, Peter tells us that we are to live with our wives in an understanding way. That means we need to understand. We need to hear from them. I need to know what my wife's needs are, her likes, her dislikes. In order for me to live with her in an understanding way, I need to understand those things. And that requires listening. That requires active listening. That requires repetitive active listening. Guys, it's, it is vitally important. And I'll tell you, again, being straight up honest with you guys, at first, I did it because my wife asked me to, and I just said, all right, whatever. But now, that's the most important hour, hour and a half in my day next to my time in God's Word. I can't wait to wake her up. 
I can't wait to go in. And if she doesn't come out of the room, because I get up earlier than that and I'm spending time reading, reading the word and that's my quiet time, but then I go and wake her up. And if she's not out in five minutes, I'm going back in, making sure she didn't fall back asleep because that's our time. It's precious to me. And it's precious to her. Now, we are called to live with our wives in an understanding way. We need to understand them. But we are also called to love them. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle but any, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. We are called to love our wives, guys, as Christ loved the church. Now that's a tall order, but if we don't understand even what that means, how can we fulfill that? Well, we need to understand how does Christ love the church? First of all, he loves the church unconditionally. He didn't love us because we first loved him. Remember, we sang about it earlier. While we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, he loved us so much that he died for us. It wasn't a conditional thing. It wasn't in response to our love. As a matter of fact, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. So guys, just as I talked about the ladies earlier, our love for our wives is not reward for their good behavior. It's not reward for them doing their duty. We are to love them unconditionally. We are also to love them sacrificially. We sang of it earlier. We talked of it earlier. He shed his blood for us. That is how much he loved us. And that is to be our example, guys. We are to love our wives sacrificially. And sacrificially means we're going to have to give up some things. We're going to have to give up things that are important to us. But that's a sacrifice. If it doesn't cost you anything, it's not a sacrifice. But you will find, as you are obedient to that command, you won't miss those things anymore. It's it's amazing to me the things that I used to think were so important that I couldn't live without, now I wouldn't go back to if you paid me. I've given them up in exchange for the relationship that I have with my wife today, and I don't want it anymore. I don't want to go back there. Unconditionally, sacrificially, and we need to love our wives, guys, actively. Actively. It tells us that, that in, in, in our, what we just looked at here, that he cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. That is what we are called to do. Actively love our wives. It tells us in our, our example that Jesus, he washes us. He uses the term that they're without spot or wrinkle. That means we were full of wrinkles and spots before. And he ironed out all the wrinkles. And he washed away all of the spots. He, in essence, is saying, my bride, my bride isn't isn't perfect, but I'm going to wash her. I'm going to make her beautiful. Actively. Now be careful, guys, how you answer this question. Does your wife have a lot of spots and wrinkles? I'm not talking physical. I'm, I'm talking about how you see her, how you see your wife. Do you like what you see? Do you like what you see when you look at your wife? I'm talking about her behavior. I'm talking about her reaction. I'm talking about the way she is. Do you like what you see? I said be careful how you answer that because 1 Corinthians eleven seven tells us the woman is the glory of the man. And that word glory means reflection. If you don't like what you see, In your wife, it is a direct reflection on your leadership in the home. It is a direct reflection on your failure as a husband. Now, I know that's hard, but it's true. Guys, that's us. We want our wives to follow us. We need to lead. It it tells us that, that... Jesus washes in the Word. When's the last time you washed your wife in the Word? When's the last time you sat down with your wife and you read the Word to her? 
and you, and, you, and you washed her in the word. You prayed through the Psalms together. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you humbled yourself before her and God got down on your knees and prayed with her? Guys, it's an active thing. But I'm drawn back to Ephesians 5 again. It says, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He would present to himself in all its glory, in all its beauty, his bride. How do you present your wife to yourself, guys? How do you, how do you see her? Is she the most beautiful woman in the world? She better be. Is she your queen? Worth fighting for? Worth dying for? She better be. Do you show her honor? That, that word honor is, is, is awesome. There's, there's many facets to it, but it means, means something of great value. Is that how you see her? Do you see her as something so precious? You should. You better. And you need to treat her that way. Again, we could say, well, they don't deserve what? You know what? Again, I didn't deserve the cleansing I got. I don't deserve for Jesus to look at me the way he does. He's my example. He's your example. How do you look at your wife? It is your choice. And how do you treat her? Do you treat her with that great value? Do you treat her as the precious treasure that she is, God's gift to you? And right now, I want to apologize to my wife in front of you for all the times that I haven't done that. Because you are precious to me. Guys, if we don't do this, if we don't do this, we have no one to blame but ourselves. This is on us. It says that, that we are fellow heirs of grace. Fellow heirs of grace. I stand here today telling you that when it comes to the marriage between my wife and I, I received far more grace than she did in that process. I married way out of my league. God, God abundantly poured out his grace on me far more than her. I got the better end of the deal by a long shot. And guys, it goes further than that. It says that if we don't treat our wives this way, our prayers will be hindered. Now that word hindered means affected. It means it, 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 that, that it, will, it doesn't mean that God won't hear our prayer. It just, mean, it just means that, they, they won't, that there won't be the response that we want from our prayer. It will be hindered. Psalm 66 Verse, verse 18 says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. It's not that he can't hear. It says that he will not hear. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that means deaf, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. And again, that word hear there doesn't mean the audible process. It means respond. And understand what, what, what is being said here. It's not punishment. It's grace. It's blessing. Because God is saying, I want you to have the best marriage you can have. I want you to be happy and fulfilled in this marriage relationship. And if I, allow, if I continue answering your prayer and blessing you while you're treating her that way, how are you ever going to learn? How, how, just like our children, we aren't going to reward them for bad behavior, right? Because we want them to learn. God wants the best for you in your marriage. We need to love our wives actively, guys. We need to love them also gently and patiently. Colossians 3.19 says, do not be embittered to your wives. That means harsh, angry. Again, just like we talked about earlier, this is, this is a battle of our flesh and the spirit within us. 
Our flesh wants to stand up and, and defend ourselves and, and, and everything else, but it says that we're not to do that. We're not to do that. Again, we are to live with our wives in an understanding way. Understanding, guys, that they're different than we are. And that's a good thing. Paul, Paul or Peter says, I'm sorry, that we are to live with them as with someone weaker. Now, that's not a derogatory term, ladies. What he's meaning is you're different. You're different. You have, you're, you're, you're different than we are. God created that way. You're, you're more emotional. You're more fragile. And that's by design. And guys, we need to understand that. They're the beautiful ceramic, beautiful crystal goblet. And we're that, you know, that stainless steel coffee mug. I mean, we're, we're different. We're different. But it's by design that we're different. We're supposed to be different. When I, I used to counsel a lot of guys. I was, uh, oversaw the men's ministry before God called me to be the pastor. And, and I would talk to guys over and over. And they'd sit in, in my office or sit over coffee. And they would tell me about their problems that they're having with their marriage. And problems they're having with their wife. And they said, I want my wife to be more like this. And to do this. And to be like this. And to do all this list. And I'd stop them. I'd say, dude, wait, 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 wait. You're describing yourself. You're telling me you want your wife to be like you. That's gross. <laughs> Trust me, guys, you don't want your wife to be one of the guys. You want your wife to be exactly who God created her to be. We get into trouble, guys, when we start placing unfair expectations on our wives. When we start expecting them to be something they were never created to be. And by the way, ladies, that goes for you too. When you place unfair expectations on your husband, expecting them to be something they were never created to be. We are called to live with you in an understanding way, but please understand this, we are never going to completely understand you. <laughs> we are never going to be able to have all of the emotions and the feelings that you want us to have. We don't have a feminine side, ladies. We read it earlier. It was taken out of us to make you. So we don't have one. So to expect us to, to act like we have one, that's unfair. When we are dealing with each other, when we're dealing with each other in this marriage relationship, please understand, husbands and wives, there is only one, there is only one who can fully satisfy everything that you need, and that is Jesus. And when we expect our spouse to do things they were never intended to do or can't do, we're setting ourselves up for failure. We need to look to Jesus for everything. Well, lastly, guys, and I'm quickly running out of time, we need to love our wives humbly. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. We are to serve our wives. That is what we are called to do. We are to serve our wives. And again, I know that goes directly in contrast to what the world looks at, this whole submission thing. Well, wait a second. If she's supposed to submit to me, that means I'm supposed to be Lord over her. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. We've already covered what it means to be submitted in this relationship. Guys, you need to outserve your wife. And ladies, you try to outserve him and just see, just have a contest in that. See how it goes. It'll work great. But guys, that's our role. And let me tell you, if we love our wives the way Christ loved the church, if we love our wives the way that we just talked about here, unconditionally, sacrificially, actively, gently, humbly, if we love our wives that way, guys, I, I, I challenge you to find one woman that wouldn't submit to a man like that, that wouldn't lovingly, eagerly follow a man like that on us guys okay we all good <laughs> equally battered and bruised we all have roles to play in this we all have god-given roles in this relationship now i gave a little uh some some ground rules for the sermon the message now i have some ground rules for the upcoming week Number one, stop praying that God changes your spouse. 
and start praying that God changes you. That was another radical thing that happened in our marriage early on. I kept on praying, God, change her. And he so clearly spoke to me that I got to change you first. And he did. And I started praying, all right, Lord, show me what I need to do and change me, Lord. And little did I know, found out later, that God was doing the same thing in my wife. And when we started focusing on our roles and what God wanted to do in me, and I stopped praying that God would change her and said, Lord, make me the husband you've called me to be. And she's praying, Lord, make me the wife I'm supposed to be. Wow, did that change everything. So that's rule number one this week. Rule number two, none of the, Pastor Brett said that you're supposed to, (laughs) okay, again, we're focusing on what God is calling us to be. Let the Holy Spirit do that work in your spouse You do what God is calling you to do. And lastly, as we close, turn, look back with me to chapter two. We have again our our perfect example in Jesus. Chapter two, verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, but while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the clarity and simplicity of your word. Lord, we see here, simply and clearly lined out for us the roles that we have as husbands and as wives. And Lord, while it is simple, while it is clear, it certainly is not easy. It requires work. Lord, I pray that you place upon each and every one of us the burden to work for our marriages, to fight for our marriages. Lord, I pray that you speak to each one of us as to the role that that we are to play. I pray, Lord, that you show us clearly how, how we have not fulfilled that, Lord, the areas where we have fallen short in that. Lord, we pray your forgiveness in that, but Lord, now we pray your empowerment to fulfill that role. Husbands, wives. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful institution, this beautiful covenant of marriage that you've given to us. Lord, we pray that we would do it well. We pray that the world around us would then take notice and see And that they would see that the the lie of the enemy and how it destroys marriages and the truth of your word and how it restores and builds marriages. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.